Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. My name is Matt, and in this episode, we're continuing our exploration of Clayton Crockett's most recent publication titled Energy and Change, A New Materialist Cosmotheology. Specifically, this time we're looking at Chapter 3, which is called Political Economy and Political Ecology, Energy, General Economy, and Exchange. We were fortunate enough to have Jeffrey Robbins join us for the discussion. As you may know, the two of them have collaborated on a number of uh, different projects over the years. So yeah, thanks again to Jeff for joining in and uh, lending his uh, insight. It was a, a great conversation that focused a little more on some of the existential implications of the chapter. Uh, This is going to be quite a long episode, longer than we normally do here, because uh, Matt and I decided to have a follow-up conversation a few days later, after we kind of processed our chat with Jeff, you know, expanding on some of those themes, and then talking about some other things as well that we, uh, we weren't able to touch on with Jeff. So, as I said, a longer conversation here. Um, I thought about breaking it up into a couple parts, but uh, that didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. So, uh, anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Just a a quick look ahead. I mentioned this, I think, towards the end of the conversation. In a couple of weeks, uh, Petra Carlson is going to join us for a discussion of the following chapter, which is right here of spirit in Amerindian voodoo and Chinese traditions after that Mary Jane Rubenstein will join us to discuss chapter 5 radical theology and the nature of God Uh, so yeah really looking forward to speaking with them Uh, and then afterwards of course we'll get to talk to Clayton and ask him a bunch of questions and that'll be that In keeping with the sort of existential through line here, it's tragic that this will have to end. Uh, Now that I've properly hyped you up, I know you're ready to (laughs) uh, hear this conversation. So yeah, hope you enjoy. Peace. Hey Jeff. Hey guys. Sorry, I was in uh, the Google Hangout for some reason. Oh, you don't want to go there. I know. That's where all the losers go. <laughs> I don't know why I was there. I clicked on some link and it took me there. I might have forgotten to uh, delete the Google Meet, so apologies okay. if I did that. No problem. So how's it going? It's going pretty well. This is always my least favorite part of the summer when getting back to it we'll start coming in about back to school stuff and have to start thinking about that but yeah how many more weeks do you do you have uh still got another what two or three weeks oh there you go off to college too so we're kind of consumed by that too whereabouts Uh, are you jeff i don't think we've met before uh, i'm in pennsylvania um okay and it's close to hershey pennsylvania where they make the chocolate or about an hour hour and a half east or west of philadelphia Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm I'm based in the in the UK and uh, right in the okay. southwest. Place okay. Cool. 
Are you near uh, where where Chris Rodke is? Yeah, he's about an hour away in New York. Okay. Um, he used to be in Lebanon, uh, taught here at our college for a while, and we used to go to his church on occasion. Okay. Okay. Um, um, you ever get a chance to see him uh, preach? Yeah. Yeah. Good bet. Yeah. Oh, I would. I would have liked to like to check that out. Sometime. Yeah, I'm always amazed. I mean, because he was at a kind of a country church here with a lot of farmers. Mm-hmm. The fact that he was able to pretty consistently preach kind of death of God theology there. Yeah, uh, it's a pretty conservative area. Um, I was always amazed how he's able to do that. Yeah, well, he's a he's a skilled translator, I guess we can yeah. say. Yeah. Um, thanks for uh, joining in with us. Matt and I have been meeting for I don't know. It, I feel like it's it's been over a year, maybe maybe even close to two years. We've been uh, reading through and chatting about different books, and uh, given our shared interest in new materialism and radical theology and a number of other things. Clayton's most recent book seemed like an obvious choice. Yeah. And and so we've so far gone through the uh, the introduction and the first two chapters. We wanted to kind of invite some people who are familiar with his work. I think there are probably few people who are more familiar mm-hmm. with yeah. Clayton's trajectory than you are. You guys, as I understand, kind of descendants of the Winquistian lineage. What is that all about? I, I've wondered about that. What is the what is it about the Syracuse school that has shaped you to in somewhat similar ways, I think. That's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of it, uh, a lot of the credit should go to Clayton. He was there before I was. Uh, He was finishing up when I started. I've told the story many times before. I mean, he was great about kind of reaching out to the younger graduate students, uh, really trying to foster a sense of community, trying to provide whatever opportunities he could uh, for presentations or publications, book reviews, those kinds of things. And so he was just always uh, really intentional about that. So pretty early on, we had a a good working relationship where everything he kind of threw my way, I was kind of eager to to take on the challenge. Um, and of course, there was Winquist, Charles Winquist, who was there, who was, uh, you know, not a typical kind of mentor, I think. I mean, he really... I think he took great pride in first and foremost empowering or enfranchising his students for them to begin to ask their own questions, big questions. There was a kind of a lot of independence, a lot of room for us to kind of tackle those questions however we saw fit. And he wasn't too heavy handed in trying to direct our research or make any kind of claims on our work. I think that independent streak from Winquist and uh, the kind of challenge to ask big questions more than anything else kind of set the the Syracuse school. Mm -hmm. The more we got into it and kind of realized its history, I think early on it kind of had established itself as one of the first PhD programs that was non-sectarian or not in any way kind of related to the church or seminary education model. Mm -hmm. And some of the professors who established the graduate department, including uh, my father-in-law, Gabriel Vahanian, uh, they really took great pride in being the first kind of department of religion as such mm. um, as offering PhDs. And so they they had taken their kind of lead from Tillich and kind of model theology of culture and and always asking the kind of critical question about what is religion rather than sort of assuming any kind of essence or kind of common starting point. 
that interrogative model, even if it wasn't radical theology per se, the questions were more interesting and important than the answers at any given time. That's what had the biggest impact on me. As it should be, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I mean, do you want to say anything about this book? I mean, first of all, I should say I'm at a wedding right now. I've <laughs> <laughs> I've pulled away and I'm quite engorged with food and slightly inebriated. So I apologize for what follows. Um, (laughs) But before we get going, is there anything that you want to kind of say preliminarily about this book? I know that you've uh, at least read it. um, And I know we're going to talk specifically about the third chapter on political economy and so on, which is an area that you, you know, work in as well. Just before we get going, I was going to give a sort of summary of the where we've been. Uh, but yeah, if you want to say anything at the outset here. I don't think it's necessary. I mean, there's, yeah, okay. there's things in this chapter in particular that I'm I'm really kind of taken by. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of turns of phrases that I've talked to Clayton with about um, whether it was intentional or not. Mm-hmm. But I think effectively crystallize um, a lot of the kind of critical and constructive work he's done through the years. I mean, I think this this chapter has it all or kind of models Crockett's thinking sort of better than anything else I know. Mm. So, uh, so no, I'm, I'm just kind of eager to see where the conversation goes and I'll be happy to add my thoughts as we go along. All right. Awesome. Matt, anything you want to say? Just it's hilarious that you're at a wedding and that really explains why you dress so smartly. And, and crucially, why <laughs> I didn't I didn't dress this way for you. No. With like I- images of people being married. I was like, what, what is this like new decor for your living room? Or like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place. It's um people here are ridiculously wealthy. I, I don't know anyone here. <laughs> um it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit uh disorienting, honestly. All right. So, I mean, it's it's a little bit daunting of a task to summarize even one of these chapters, but let me try to give a go of where we've been just to kind of set the table for what we're going to talk about today. So the book, Energy and Change, as the title suggests, this is for Crockett, I think, really two ways of talking about the same phenomenon and sort of insisting on those two terms for me is a bit like saying God or nature for Spinoza. There are two different ways of talking about nature of reality or or being, which is according to Crockett energy transformation. Broadly speaking, we're, we're located in a process-oriented philosophy, very Heraclitian vision. In fact, that's how he starts the book, I think. And then also we're working within a new materialist framework, um, which emphasizes the uh, again, the dynamism of matter, but does that in a way that sort of cuts across um, a lot of modern discourses, scientific, linguistic, spiritual, uh, in a way that I think lends a uh, sort of univocity to all of these things where we can talk about spiritual and material processes in a single voice. And so he's putting all of this into service of examining economic, political, and ecological crises that we're we're facing and and undergoing i think that's that's the central concern here it's a a practical one even though a lot of what we're going to read and what we do read in here is uh, highly theoretical um in the first chapter we explore how how we thought about energy uh through time it, starting with a sort of aristotelian vision that subordinates movement to rest and there's a sort of 
uh, telic quality to energy. And so actuality is primary, potentiality is secondary. That gets reversed in modernity and our various, I don't know, uh, collective dreams for mastery or stability or progress, uh, much of which we've inherited from Christianity gets taken up. And, and certain technological advancements, in particular the invention of the steam engine, is what allows us to exploit cheap energy even more efficiently. And it gives rise to the science of thermodynamics, which initially concerns itself with closed systems like the steam engine. And you know we get the second law of thermodynamics, which has to do with entropy. And this introduces an asymmetry into the nature of reality. So we get the arrow of time. We get an account of why uh, time moves in one direction. And then there's an extended discussion of non-equilibrium thermodynamics, where energy comes to be understood not just as heat moving across a gradient, uh, but it could be any number of things, you know, pressure or chemical gradients. And it's these movement of gradients across a differential that creates form. And so... Yeah, so energy is the kind of excess of being that seeks equilibrium in the form of gradient reduction. And this is brought into proximity with Deleuze so that we we come to understand this process both materially and physically or philosophically as the as a result of a process of differentiation where series are brought together and that differential in the series is what Deleuze calls intensity. Difference repeats, intensity becomes extensity becomes recognizable as form. So anyway, it's that engagement with the loose, that bringing together of physics and metaphysics that I think is the major contribution there. And so that insight about how energy tends towards gradient dissolution, the flow through a system is what organizes it. And when that becomes relatively stable, that constitutes a, a cycle, sort of like an energetic body or Clayton doesn't use this language, but I maybe we can say it's a body without organs. Um, but then this gets carried forward in the next chapter on bioenergetics, where it gives a kind of complex account of the possible origins of life in a way that is really drawing a continuity between organic and inorganic matter, explaining how life is a sort of result of these thermodynamic processes described uh, in the previous chapter. You know, the, the earth itself is a thermodynamic system you know, where the sun is an energy source and the space around the earth is an energy sink. Then there's a lot of time spent around thinking about the workings of a cell, specifically the movement of um, uh, protons across the cell membrane. And all of that gets folded into a conversation about evolution, which emphasizes this neo-Darwinian vision whereby epigenetic processes, which aren't very much understood, aren't completely understood, but they make possible these sudden changes in form. And one way of talking about this is uh, punctuated equilibrium, where because of different kinds of ratcheting effects, right? Because thermodynamics processes are irreversible, um, it, there's a sort of cranking effect. And so that changes can, or novelty can uh, occur quite suddenly. The really interesting contribution of the chapter is when he is working with Catherine Malibu and her reimagining of Darwin and Kant's transcendental to be reimagined as a, not some immutable condition, but like a description of the total environment as a constraint. So it's something that's both imminent to life and subject to change. And it's this kind of feedback between 
life and the transcendental that produces different kinds of pressures that make adaptation possible and shape life and so on. I'm not sure I explained that perfectly well, but it's quite a complex point that I think he's trying to make there. There's lots of other things that he he touches on as well. The only thing I'd want to like point out in a general sense is that for Crockett, there's a general refusal of any sort of teleological account and an insistence on indeterminacy. I think these are on one hand, they're a priori commitments, I think, that Crockett is bringing in, but also he he does take the time to stop and kind of support those points whenever they whenever they kind of come into play or whatever. There's a lot I've probably skipped over, but I think that is uh, probably the best I can do in terms of an overview of, of what we've read so far. Good job. I like that. Yeah, the one thing I'd add to that, Matt, was the... Um which I don't think is super explicit, but I feel like is there going through it is the question of identity Mm. uh, because of Deleuze's commitment to move beyond a representational logic. The the question of sameness and difference is then explored through that differentiator. And that gets taken up in this idea of the challenge to a Darwinian logic because of the, the difficulty of determining the identity of a bacteria. It, which is very different to determining the identity of, say, a mammal uh, in a, in terms of sexual reproduction. So I think there's something that's been running through this about identity and determining identity and the extent to which that's possible, because all of this is really about a play of stability and instability or uh, constancy and change. Yeah, that, that sounds right and certainly seems fair to me. Uh, yeah, the only place I would, I don't know if pushback's the right way to put it, but... Um... Right at the outset, you talked about energy and and change in some ways being kind of um, equivalent, and of course they are, but this larger kind of dynamic that Crockett traces throughout the book between the stability and instability, I think also, especially in chapter three, highlights the, the ways by which sort of one can track the flow of energy and the possibility of change is, is in some ways kind of mutually exclusive or incompatible, or at least the the appearance is that one cannot account for the other. And so as I, as I read sort of chapter three throughout, I'm like, where, where does the change come from beyond sort of the, the kind of constant sort of change that works as a form of circulation and iterability where is the the actual kind of change in terms of like novelty? How and when, where does that happen uh, within the context of thermodynamics? So, yeah, so in, in that sense, it's not energy and change can be sort of pitted as opposites, not energy and change, but sort of energy versus change. You could also think of that in terms of kind of energy versus life, physics versus evolution. Um, and that's where in this chapter, when, when he talks about those kind of incompatibilities, there he's sort of pitting one against the other. Um, and the way we account for the expenditure of life, energy's expenditure in life, it's in some ways seems to violate what we know about the first law of thermodynamics. Um, so that when Clayton says there's no closed system, for instance, like uh, so much of the laws of thermodynamics are dealing with the very sort of the kind of heuristic of energy operating in a closed system, even if we know that not to be the case. 
so the way in which this the energy and change of course sort of we're trying to account for both at one and the same time but also the kind of uh, generative nature of carefully delineating or differentiating one from the other which i think crockett does in this chapter especially well i think that's really interesting too Now, is it worth us um, trying to sort of do a brief summary of the trajectory of this chapter three, and then we get into some of the detail of it? Yeah, you want to give it a go? Sure. Um, well, as as I read it, this is a chapter that's really makes explicit what has been hinted to several times already in the book, which is that we're focusing on the context of what has been called the Anthropocene, we live in a moment of climate and ecological crisis from a human and, and other species perspective. And very clearly, that is driven by an extractive economy, which we can trace back to the innovations of the Industrial Revolution and the ability to work more efficiently with energy gradients, as, as you explained earlier, Matt. So that to me feels like the, the clear context and it kind of bookends the chapter because Crockett's introducing some of those things at the beginning and then comes back to some of those concepts with Latour and then Sarah's uh, right at the end. Um, but the, the journey through there, to me, the things that really stood out was, was the idea of thinking about energy as work. And in, in the scientific context often energy and work particularly in the time of the industrial revolution were, were kind of conflated but really work is is just useful energy uh, and um useful is really a matter of opinion it depends what you're trying to achieve and from who, whose perspective you're looking as to whether something's useful or not and so i read this chapter really as a kind of interrogating the question about what counts as work or how to account for energy as something useful and how perhaps to rethink or reimagine all that. The the key thinkers in this chapter, uh, we have uh, Georges Bataille, uh, the French um, philosopher, I suppose, but uh, pretty interdisciplinary thinker, and his concept of a general economy as one of exchange. And general economy is really, I suppose, the way that Crockett sets this out is a response to classical and then neoclassical economics, which really restricts the ways of thinking about economics in a similar way to how scientists would sometimes restrict thinking about thermodynamics to closed systems or energy to useful energy rather than just energy as a whole. And so what Bataille is doing is saying, we need to think about the whole economy, which is really an exchange of energy. There might be smaller localised economies within that that one could consider, but but they have to be set in the context of a general economy. There's a discussion on money as exchange and uh, uh, referencing David Graeber, that exchange is not equal to barter. And that leads into a discussion of a gift economy. Um, he talks about Kojin Karatani, the uh, Japanese thinker who talks about four types of economy, a gift economy, economy of domination, an economy of commodity, and then a fourth 
type, which is kind of like how would you re return to a gift economy, but requires imagining something new. Um, and the gift economy is drawing on uh, Mouse's um, anthropological work ab about pre-modern societies and, and gift-giving economies. Uh, I use the word pre-modern there. I don't think that's the right term that I'm looking for, but um, often like in, in what we might call indigenized societies, or um, you might have better words for me than that one. Um, but the idea that a gift exchange is not the same as exchange under capitalism, which has a fixed value uh, but the gift exchange is a gift of excess, but it puts somebody else under obligation. And so thinking of a gift exchange, a gift e economy as an economy of excess is then for Bataille something that actually can be thought in erotic terms, in the sense that erotics being a going beyond an, an excess, something that is from a industrial capitalist perspective, useless it's not you can't be measured efficiently uh, and so all of that is then kind of brought full circle to say okay that thinking of a general economy as one that is constantly in excess means that change and energy can also be thought as exchange and energy but exchange not in terms of a fixed value exchange, but exchange under a, a gift economy of excess. And it's at that point he then comes back to Malibu and really picks up some of the themes of the previous chapter, uh, particularly where Malibu wants to talk about the interchangeability of change and exchange, and particularly the exchange of being with a capital B and being lowercase b. And that's something that I think we'll need to to tease out some more and, and clarify that. But it's the exchange between being and being, or these two ways of thinking about being, um, that resituates energy for Crockett as a form of exchange, but is something that we can think in terms of the thermodynamics we've talked about already. We can think about it in terms of life. We can think about it in terms of uh, Heideggerian philosophy. We can think about it in terms of political economy we can think about it in terms of ecology uh because in the end all of this is about the exchange of energy and that is a way of thinking of a, a kind of that would be a general economy which would also be an ecology but th the purpose of it all just to come back to what i began with the purpose of it all for me as i read it is how to rethink the economy and the way that we think about our being in the world in the context of the anthropocene yeah, and just to, to put an exclamation point on that, um, I mean, the opening section, learning how to die. I mean, I, I think that one of you sort of mentioned earlier how uh, there is a practical element to this. It might be sort of lost in the weeds for some or the, the highly technical language and analysis that Crockett provides along the way. But yeah, I think you're right. At the At the very sort of base of this is a very practical called existential question even um learning how to die and sort of uh not just as an individual but as a civilization learning the ways by which our life of consumption is not just sort of wasteful but it's we're living ourselves to death and we're living civilization to death to the point of death where there's no return it's a very sort of dark gloomy yeah i think setting but um i appreciate the insistence on this kind of question 
throughout this chapter. Um, and he, he just kind of comes back to it in very, I, I think, kind of evocative ways. I, to me, the statement he makes kind of towards the end of the chapter where he says, we cannot change even as we know we must. Um, when he spent, you know, up to this point, three chapters really laying out how we can understand change as exchange, that from Malibu's perspective, before being comes change, before difference in identity, it's change that's the kind of engine that drives that whole form of representation. So he's talked nothing but change, but then sort of asks this question, but, but we can't. And so that that way of kind of playing with the word change, which I think he gets from Malibu, what, what constitutes real change? Um, and how can we give an account of a kind of change without exoticism, without sort of exchanging one world from it for another. I think that's where this chapter is really, really interesting. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing it back to where he starts this chapter, because that really struck me. It's a very bleak place to begin talking about our current situation. Um, and it's very I mean, some could say it's very uh, pessimistic. I feel like it's a very open-eyed and honest approach to it. And yeah, that, that tension between we can't change, but our nature is change is something that he he insists upon in the in the introduction as well. And that's something that I'm still trying to tease out. I think there maybe is something in the background going on here. I don't want to assume too much. But the conversation about the transcendental, the totality of constraints that creates the conditions for unexpected novelty is probably the brightest point I can point to in here in the sense that, yes, it's a very bleak situation, but the indeterminacy that Crockett insists upon is actually the only point of what we might even call hope or something like that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> to me, this is where... The rootedness for Crockett and the kind of lineage of radical theology is most apparent to me. Hmm. That we're we're dealing with life as such, uh, not concerned with life after death or again sort of exchanging this world for another, but life as it is. What are the sort of own most possibilities of life as it is, as lived? And so there's a kind of commitment to eminence. Uh, but also there's that Nietzschean sense of if we cannot say yes to life on these terms, then that's just a form of wish fulfillment. But we have to be able to say yes to life on these terms, knowing how wasteful it is, knowing how the fact we are all going to die or we are already at the point of death um, and to to be honest about that. So that's where it strikes me as a kind of a kind of standard orthodox. Uh, mm -hmm. movement in radical theology uh, that he would begin at that point. Yeah. And if I can just add on to that, I mean, I think that this isn't something that I've brought up before because I haven't felt like it was appropriate, but having you here, you can push back on this if you want. I noticed that just today, I noticed actually, when I was kind of flipping through this, that the dedication to Stephanie and to our skeletons, IOU eternity, you know, I, I think there's a real confrontation for Clayton personally with finitude and also the imagery of the, you know, I'm a, I'm a graphic designer. And when the first time when I looked at this book, the first 20 times I looked at this book, I was like, I don't like it. I don't like the design. But the more I've looked at it and the more I've read through this, I think I get it. 
you know, there's a very sort of traditional kind of classic death of God um, yeah. Im imagery yeah. here with the eclipse. Right. But the eclipse is somehow giving birth to something new. Yeah, I, I, it's it's very sort of like iconic, I guess. Yeah. Uh, or symbolic. Um, but you, I mean, yeah, I, I get the point. Like it's 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 uh, it's astrophysics and sort of biological. I mean, they're, they're this it, it, yes, it it evokes the image of an eclipse, but it also looks like a flower petal, right? Right. Or it is a flower petal. So I think that again, that what he says time and again here that that incommensurability between physics and biology between life and energy somehow we've got to find a way to kind of think these things together and i, I do think that image on the cover captures that yeah how does energy become life i mean these are these are age-old questions right you know? what do you think about the that question of change so jeff because you brought that up earlier almost as a as a question for clayton as a what are you saying then about change like how, how would we change anything because it, it seems to me that there's this matt you and i talked about this in our conversation on the introduction this question of how do we change if we can't change um yeah. i mean other than the sort of epicurean swerve where you know chance can be introduced at some statistical level of probability or improbability i mean what, what do you make of it all jeff um, I make it that it's difficult. I think there's the same if one traces um, the kind of working out of Malibu's own thinking, starting with uh, what should we do with our brains. Early on, in talking about sort of the brain's plasticity, she talks about these three different types of change. The third being what she calls explosive change. Instead of relying there on neuroscience and the brain's plasticity she kind of uses the play on words within the french language that kind of relates change and plasticity with explosives right with dynamite and so it becomes almost like a um the best she can do to talk about real change is to reach for a kind of metaphor or to rely on a kind of allegorical thinking right uh, a kind of coincidence of language allows her to at least sort of theorize this kind of possibility of real change as opposed to just change as exchange. I think as her work has evolved, she's given a lot more thought to change. I think the whole book on on Heidegger, sort of changing difference, she develops a metaphysics of of change beneath being even. And then I think the turn towards epigenetics from plasticity also gives her a kind of an ability to think about sort of the kind of change that really changes things as opposed to just sort of change which is a form of circulation alone so i see the same kind of tension in crockett's work i, I do think that there is a consistency and integrity to his refusal to allegorize or to provide a kind of answer through kind of metaphor or coincidence of language or anything like that. I mean, philosophy is not just about learning how to die, but we are dying. We're killing ourselves. We're ki killing our planet. Yeah, that's where we start with. But as he says, I mean, this is where the hope comes in. We're not dead yet. So long as we're not dead yet, we have the possibility to resist. And in sort of resistance, there is a kind of becoming, there is a kind of change. So 
it's not easy. I think it sort of meets the test that Malibu lays out that it has to be changed without exoticism, without some kind of, without a miracle, without some supernatural, something sort of being inserted from outside. But the whole kind of dynamic between energy and life, the idea that for life to sustain itself, it needs this constant sort of reintroduction of energy. Uh, without sort of the energy being entered into the general economy, then the energy is going to sort of dissipate by virtue of entropy and there's going to be, it's going to, life is going to spend itself to the point of death. So the fact that there is a way of accounting for something from outside coming within, that this constant sort of reintroduction of energy, that there is no closed system. What that requires is us to think about the relationality between one system and another, and the fact that there's all these different sort of gradients that work all at once. Um, that holds out the hope that we're not sort of closed in the infinite circularity of thought and being, that there's the possibility for something new and different. I think yeah. that's where the question of agency is really interesting because he ends the chapter talking about Latour who who really tries to sort of conceptualize this idea of a distribu distributed agency but i think that's one of the chat i mean the, the kind of existential question for most of us at a practical level is okay you know if we are careering towards death then how do we actually resist how do you make a change and the question becomes a question of agency where you feel like you're in systems you can't actually yeah. do anything about. I, I think clayton answers that early on in the book he says we he poses the question what can we do and he says nothing i find that to be sort of troubling and also provocative and also to a smaller degree inspiring <laughs> yeah. i mean I, I i had to give a short presentation on uh sort of this book elsewhere and I, and and my whole effort was to kind of tease out that phrase we cannot change even as we know we must because if i think if you know anything about crockett's work you know that there's an additional statement that you could add on to that not only we cannot change even as we know we, we must but also even as we know we already do that we're constantly in a state of change you know so it's not it's not either or it is that uh, even in the midst of this constant state of change, which is the most sort of basic thing we might know about sort of being, how can we harness that change? I mean, I, I'm, I, I find that language problematic given the stuff we talked about in terms of useful work. Yeah. Uh, I think Bataille is really important to this chapter that, that there's this wild exuberance, there's this squandering of resources. If you know, the kind of trajectory of Clayton's own work in terms of his interest in energy. The first major paper he gave on this was on entropy, that this was the kind of forgotten piece of the puzzle that, uh, you know, continental philosophy of religion or theology had thus far left unthought. So that kind of notion of sort of dissipation and squandering and excess, I think is so important. So we haven't really talked much about this chapter. Should we talk about one of the differences he initially sets up between classical and neoclassical economics? I find it really refreshing to talk about the kind of materiality of economics in a way in which I hadn't considered before. That 
economic activity is always a matter of kind of energy exchange and it's the sort of energy that's beneath it. There is a material base, even when we consider this kind of construct we call money. Beyond that, I don't have anything to add. I mean, I like the point about money. I think uh, it's a difficult thing to talk about. I was thinking about how there's that sort of trope or, or cliche. I'm not sure what it is, but that that time is money. And in neoliberal, uh, neoclassical, sorry, economics, it's not just a, a trope or a cliche. It's describing the way that economists transpose and quantify material and energetic flows into discrete packets of time, I guess. We sort of hinted at this already, but the idea being that production and time are equivalences that don't need to account for entropy, don't need to account for energetic flows that make them possible. Yeah. And mistake, I mean, the mistake is the same one we've seen before. The, the mistake of economists is to trick themselves into thinking there is such a thing as a closed system. Right. And so long as they're able to account for it within the, the kind of restraints or the artificial constrictions of a of a closed system that they're that they're able to explain and predict human behavior. But what that fails to recognize is that within every any and every closed system, there's always a kind of relationality with other closed systems or even sort of a more kind of open economy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think entropy is right there. I mean, entropy is what gives us the measure of time. The, the measure of sort of disorganization is how we can track the measure of time. So, yeah, I think the political economists make the mistake of treating the economy as a closed system. Um, yeah, and, and I think it's a monumental failure, according to Crockett. I mean, it's like it, and and sort of, I mean, it, it's almost an unarguable case, as far as I can see. It's economists have set up structures to delimit their analysis it, in a classical economic sense. We're we're talking about nation states and how economies are run for nation states in the neoclassical economic model. They become deregulated and more financialized in terms of markets. But none of any of that is possible without resources which we use for energy, which are only uh, available to us because they've metabolized the energy of the sun. And so everybody uh, in every type of economics ignores that overwhelming reality. So it's, it's not like economics as a discipline kind of made a small mistake. I mean, it's a fundamental error. And then... The, the kind of disconnect between political economy and political ecology. And, and this is sort of the methodological point about Clayton. Even if he doesn't always fully analyze the connection or even sort of theorize the connections, at least sort of asking those questions. Like if we're talking about political economy, shouldn't we also be talking about political ecology? And if the mistake, the fundamental mistake upon which classical economics is built is the delusional pretending of, of it operating as a closed system, then what's the squandering? What's the excess? What's sort of outside that sort of delimitation that we have to give account for? And this is where the environmental damage and catastrophe that we all know so well now finally gets an accounting. But it's only because we've kind of forced that question. Yeah, the point about 
excess I find fascinating. It lends itself more to a psychoanalytic discourse or, or something else. But the idea that what's really produced in economics is not essentially material or not only material, but is something more like jouissance, uh, partaking of the excess of being. Yeah, I think it's important and really um, counterintuitive. From my point of view, I'm involved in green movements here in the UK. And one of the, the kind of core ideas is from an economic perspective, environmental costs are those that have been you know, unaccounted for on the balance sheet. So the solution to that is to account for them on the balance sheet. And you can do that with various methods like carbon tax or other ways of of factoring in the cost of carbon emissions into economic calculations. I mean, that might be a very pragmatic way forward and uh, is something that I've definitely advocated for. But I think that having read this chapter, I have to rethink that because this critique of political economy is also, as I read it, a critique of the idea of a balance sheet. It's the critique of the idea that you could create fixed values to things or you could think about exchange in terms of monetary equivalents. Uh, or, or I'm not sure if that's right, actually, because then I think there's a rethinking of money, which isn't necessarily about uh, equivalents. This idea of the excess is related to this idea of a gift economy, which is a completely different model, which isn't accounting for things uh, in terms of sort of profit and loss or credit and debit in a capitalist sense. I mean, the example he gives is, you know, the tribe that gives another tribe an excessive gift, and then the person has to receive the gift, has to smile and thank them and is thinking inside, oh, shit, now I'm really obligated to them and I've got to go and, you know, and it's a totally different economic model that relies on obligation and exchange as an excess and he gets to the point of saying that the the kind of archetypal or uh, the kind of originary idea of this gift of excess is the trading of women in early agrarian societies which become more settled and therefore the exogenous i'm saying that right marriage uh is a way of formalizing social relations you give your daughter away to a man to cement a marriage, it's an excessive gift because it's far too much to give. And at the same time, it's completely calculated because um, you need to have that series of exchange in in order to create uh, a kind of balance with people that might otherwise be your enemies. That's totally different to thinking about um, a carbon tax. (laughs) And so I, I, I find that quite interesting as a way of, I don't quite know where that goes or I mean there are people you know we we talk about sharing economies now but it all feels very low level and it I don't know how that translates to a kind of really radically different way of thinking about economics in practical terms yeah and think and going back to the kind of first observation I made about the seeming incompatibility between energy and change you can also think about this in terms of where the squandering happens, where the excess lies. And and for Crockett, we live in a world of finite resources. You know, life is a momentary, complex self-organization system that relies on the flow of energy. Anytime you place a monetary value on that concrescence, 
whether it be sort of a life or a commodity, whatever it might be, you are kind of arresting the flow. It allows for the circulation, but it also kind of interrupts the circulation. You know, when it comes to energy, there is a super abundance of energy. But were we to spend all our energy, it would burn us to death. It would be our own death sentence, which is precisely the conundrum we're on. So because we live on a planet with concrete, finite resources, we're not in a position where we can fully exploit the superabundance of energy that we have. Every time, back to the kind of balance sheet, every time we try to sort of take those externalities and somehow factor them in, aren't we kind of making the same mistake? of somehow feeling like if we can just get the balance sheet right, then somehow that's going to stop the inevitability of death, the process of death that we've sort of given birth to, you know? Yeah, and I, I think that's, to a large degree, can give an account for the sort of almost neurotic obsession with efficiency and data collection, right? The idea is that the, the more data we have, then we'll be able to kind of perfect the system that nothing will escape the ledger, I suppose. What we're really doing is finding more complex and more clever ways of uh, outboarding our, our entropy. Yeah. I mean, one, one new way of thinking about entropy that this chapter gives us from, at least for me is thinking about energy and economic terms as the law of diminishing returns, that there is that inevitability. Yeah, and and then just sort of in socioeconomic terms, the somebody mentioned Graeber earlier in the that designation of creditor and debtor, it sets up a a gradient, a differential between the, the between the rich and the poor. For me, this was very eye opening. As once you understand that, the, the differential is set up to be extractive, and there's a reason why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I think that's really interesting, Matt. I've not thought about that at all as a gradient, because what that makes me think about is the idea that Crockett's introduced really early on in this book about how you have multiple, uh, in some ways, competing entropies that in their drive to be as efficient as possible actually create forms of stability and form. And if you think of rich get richer, poor get poorer as a result of a gradient, there may be other gradients at smaller scales involved in that, um, which if they were, uh, would create a different sort of emergent, yeah, one gradient is not in isolation. Uh, It's the result or it contributes to other gradients, which I'm just coming back to the question of how do you change anything? Well, yeah, and I mean, since we're talking, you know, uh, pretty straightforwardly in economic terms, it brings to mind the idea of debt cancellation or jubilee mm. as, a, as a sort of arbitrary intervention, but it's nonetheless a necessary one for the conservation of uh, not energy as such, but conservation of energy in the sense that we can all continue to uh, survive. And I, and I wonder, is there some sort of correlate or or analog from economics to what would be the equivalent of a jubilee in ecological terms? Um, well, I think it is I the jubilee, know. isn't it? I mean, the original concept of the jubilee is in like Latourian terms, uh, as Crockett says at the end, you know, it's, it, in the end, we have to come down to earth 
have the book right here, uh, is the terrestrial, the Jubilee, the concept of the Jubilee comes from letting the land go fallow. And so actually thinking terrestrially about regeneration is um, is at the root of the concept of Jubilee. So I, I think there's a deep, deep historical link there. And, with, and from that book too, down to earth, the most sort of damning indictment in that book is the the ways by which uh, those who have the means are seeking to escape the earth, right? Or, or kind of wall themselves off from the devastation and degradation of the earth. Um, and so back to the previous point you guys were making, I think sort of socioeconomically, you can sort of see the rich getting richer, poor getting poorer. Um, we can sort of think about it in those terms. But also you can think about that in terms of uh, to put evolution back in the mix. The way in which what we see is over time, you know, more and more complex organisms that require a, a greater deal of kind of self-organization that then requires that much more energy to sustain that seemingly infinite complexity. Um, so as, as life evolves, it requires more energy to sustain it. Likewise, socioeconomically, those who, who can are claiming sort of more and more of that energy as their own. And that's this move, whether we're going to be terrestrial down to earth or whether we're going to see some kind of escape hatch, right? Yeah, um, and that's a fun. And again, I mean, you all know this well. I mean, that's a fundamental challenge or claim of radical theology too. I mean, where where do we place our ultimate value, sort of here or elsewhere? Um, so I, th I think this is another way of getting at that question as well. Yeah, I suppose that's an interesting question to ask from a radical theological perspective. Um, what is the? Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the question is, but like, yeah, what's what's the sort of take on? the transhumanist approach as opposed to a more, I don't know, I guess, post-humanist mm -hmm. uh, approach. There's an important distinction there. Anyway. You mentioned earlier, Matt, when we were talking about that, about that that might relate to a question of identity. And I, I'd been thinking the same thing because and I think this is how Crockett also lands this chapter by talking about the self, thinking of a, a economy as a gift becomes a kind of giving of the self, but not in the sense that the self is you know, a very stable I to your stable thou, uh, and I can give myself as an I, but that by the very nature of identity, it is unstable, entangled in different ways. And so this question of like how to die, how to die well, and how to think about death as a kind of impending and accelerating phenomenon in this moment in history and and at the same time wanting to resist it as well as knowing that we have to embrace it i mean it, it feels very tied up to in this question of well who who's doing the dying if i say i'm doing the dying uh who, who am i talking about anyway because if if i is not a, a stable phenomenon or a stable identity but, i mean in I, some ways this is like a, a classic sort of New Testament. I was going to say, it sounds like you're willing to take upon the sins of the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think there's some of that there. Um, not that there's any kind of substitutionary atonement being offered, but but this kind of rematerialization of, of the self um, and where the self finds its sense of belonging. I'm more comfortable with the language of belonging relationality than I am with 
identity because I mean, still with, I, I think at least on, on my own end, I can't help sort of thinking identity without somehow becoming sort of anthropological thinking about sort of separating the human out from nature. And I think so much of the work that Clayton is doing through this political economy and political e- ecology is to to challenge us to put an end to any form of human exceptionalism. Of course, we're going to die. All Everything that lives dies. We know that. Um, but the ways in which we try to forestall death or to outsource our death or to, you know, bring death to others and, and you know, save ourselves. These, these are the mistakes we make. And it's because we somehow think we can excuse ourselves from the system. Uh, I blame Plato, <laughs> as with all things. I think there's a very, like, personal existential question in there, though, I've really wrestled with, with all the way through this book, which is I want to affirm death as a part of life. And, you know, from multiple points of view, philosophically, biologically, uh, spiritually, and so on. But I don't want to die. (laughs) And I don't want the people I love to die. And I don't want the trees I can see out here and the other species. I don't want them to die. So on the one hand, I want to acknowledge the kind of distributed nature of of my identity or, or perhaps, as you say, Jeff, my belonging and the sort of entanglements of my being and so on. But it feels like I can't get away from the psychological or psychoanalytic, in the terms you used earlier, Matt, issue that um, I just I don't want to die. I want to live. Uh, and so it, it then feels incredibly difficult to ever really get beyond anthropocentric way of looking at the world because in the end it comes back to this question of what does life mean for me what does life mean for the people I love and so on and the idea of trying to transgress that and say well that doesn't actually matter Mm -hmm. uh it a a feels impossible but also sort of feels wrong and I and I think that's the conundrum that I'm wrestling with yeah I appreciate I mean I mean I think since uh George Carlin we can kind of appreciate that dynamic right i mean when we were concerned about the earth coming to an end we're not really concerned about the earth we're concerned about human beings on earth right and so i I, yeah i think that's as inevitable as any of these other sort of dynamics we're talking about this sort of psychodynamic of self-concern even if it's not selfish is natural but like to know that there is life before and after and to know that it's because there's this super abundance to energy that's flowing through these life forms that creates life out of death that's what's even more fundamental than my own immortality or my own limited number of days i have left you can almost give a somewhat orthodox accounting of an afterlife but within a sort of more pantheist or panentheist framework and and i think that the effort to think across the human non-human divide philosophically think across the organic slash inorganic divide i think these things can be liberatory and give rise to a kind of afterlife isn't quite the right word <laughs> i have no expectation that i my consciousness is going to extend indefinitely i'm i'm okay with not knowing <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but the, yeah, that's this is where if we sh- shifted 
had the paradigm shift from sort of human consciousness to spirit, life, energy, the kind of terms that Crockett's going to offer up in chapter oh, five. God. <laughs> then it's, you know, uh, yes, I have no expectations that my consciousness is going to survive, but certainly the energy that animates me, that will not go away. So if that's the thing we're trying to get in touch with, is that a more, does that provide for a more authentic spirituality, a more kind of authentic sense of uh, what it means to be human or what life consists of? I mean, and do you, for you, Jeff, do you find that meaningful? Because I, when I think about that, I, I find it meaningful when it, if it's like Friday night and I'm really comfortable. <laughs> yeah, if only because um, I don't know. Yeah, the alternatives are great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I find it meaningful, I, even if it brings me sadness. Or I, I know that there's a kind of desire that kind of outstrips my knowledge of uh, what is i'm okay with that i'm more than okay i mean I, I feel like i'm i'm reconciled to life as we know it on those terms and that feels right as a parent i, I felt the passage of time with my children that i never sort of knew it for myself because i was living it for myself and like to know at that moment that i that i might sort of love that of course I do. I love that child at that moment as they are, as completely as I possibly can. And to know that that self that they are at that moment in time will be will be gone, that I'll have to sort of let go. Otherwise, I'm going to do damage to them, you know? So that, that to me, temporality, finitude, uh, the kind of passage of time, just it, it's a way of recognizing kairos, the kind of richness uh, of time um, and what gives sort of time meaning. One of the things that uh, Clayton talks about, at least in the introduction, and I think he'll probably return to it at some point, is um, love. And you're talking about your relationship to your children. And love seems to fit into this conversation in a very ambiguous way. And I think, Matt, you were raising the question the first time we spoke about this. You know, like, what does Clayton mean by love? Is he just kind of renaming? change are we sort of just redefining terms what's your take on not just love in terms of how clayton is using it but yeah. um yeah anything you want to offer there as a final words okay. um i found it moving clayton's talk about love in this chat in this book um i i know i found myself sort of asking is this is this that sort of moment where he's um reaching for allegory or metaphor uh, has he has he reached his thoughts limits uh, and the parameters uh, the kind of imminent parameters that he sets for himself? Um, and I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that there there's a reason why he continues to call what he does sort of theology. And I think sort of part of that is that these sort of words, these these terms, they can sort of be reclaimed. We can sort of shift the registers. Uh, we can change this idiomatic sort of nature of much of what we say and express we can change how we think about money um, and energy likewise when it comes to love what does it mean to sort of love uh, with the knowledge of of loss i i found that sort of existential theological spiritual um, yeah. 
So I don't I don't think it's just sort of playing with language. I think Clayton is is risking risking a kind of a kind of theology that does not come as naturally to him because of the ways in which his mind works. But I think he's speaking to what's most true to himself at the same time. Anything else you wanted to uh, either of you want to say about uh, this chapter or anything else? No, it's all been just said. one final thing, Matt. Just to respond to, I mean, it's beautiful what you just said, Jeff. And I think that in the context of this chapter, thinking about how political, economic imagination might shape our capacity to either be able to think and explore life that way or shut it down and make it harder for us to do that. That feels like part of the point then of, of the wrestling, uh, as, I've, as I've heard you talk about that, which I, I really like, that's, very, that's valuable to me. That's something for me to, to think a lot more on. Jeff, always a pleasure. Really appreciate you joining with us and, and kind of helping us uh, think some of these ideas through. Come back anytime. Yeah, thanks for invite me into the conversation and thanks for what you're doing awesome i gotta get back i gotta get back to my wedding and (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah make a fool of myself on the dance floor so all right have fun markedly different from my own in very particular ways that I really appreciated. And overall, I I really enjoyed the general contours of the conversation. But at the same time, I felt, and I think maybe you did as well, that there were, there are some other things in the chapter that maybe we would have liked to have talked a bit more about. Although I, I think we did in very sort of broad strokes, did all right, giving a sense for what the chapter is about. I think there are some particular arguments and engagements with thinkers that, I don't know, I wanted to draw out a little bit more, mm. frankly, for my own <laughs> for my own benefit. So I guess that's my starting point. What did you think about it? Yeah, uh, that resonates with me. I found the conversation really interesting. And I think probably because Jeff knows Clayton well, and perhaps because of his own Jeff's own perspective as well. He really focused on the beginning, or the, the intro to that chapter, which is about learning how to die well. Um, and that seemed to be a theme that was his lens for reading the whole chapter. It wasn't what I was primarily thinking about when we went into that conversation. And I really have had to engage with that. It's interesting for me because I've been writing about alchemy. You know, I sent you that. Oh, you published it, didn't you? The, the audio of that conference paper I gave last year so I've been writing that up for a journal article I've been writing about my arguments on alchemy about how to live and how to die I felt in that conversation with Jeff it just made me encounter that in a deeper way so it was quite unexpected and I've had to reflect a lot on it Hmm. you know when you you feel like you've been thinking about something and you realize you haven't really been thinking about it it was one of those 
uh, I need to think about it more. But yeah, I, I agree. We we had a good overview of the concepts, but I think as a result of majoring on that question of how to die, we sort of didn't get into some of the detail of some of the thinkers that Crockett's working with in the way that we had in previous chapters. So I do feel like we maybe missed that a bit. Yeah. The thing you were just saying about alchemy just now, I was hoping to read the whole chapter this morning, but I didn't have time to, but I did kind of skim through and looked at my notes and uh, things I've highlighted. And there is one bit here. I'm, I'm not sure this is necessarily the best place to start, but since you mentioned alchemy on 151, third paragraph down, the entropy law is how we measure and understand change. Change involves the binding and using up of free energy. And this is an irrevo irrevocable and this is an irrevocable process. At the same time, this very binding also produces the emergence of novelty by combination. So, I mean, those are all ideas that we've touched on before, but it was, I suppose, just the particular way that he chose to phrase that using the language of binding and how that process of binding produces the emergence of novelty by combination. There's a very, that's very resonant with a kind of magical discourse, which is in a very ancient sense, concerned with binding and loosening. And I think those terms still inform my thinking around metaphysics, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting. I also had that same quote highlighted. And for the same reason, I thought the the idea of binding was, was interesting. I hadn't thought of that in terms of magical discourse, though. I think that the, um, the question of alchemy is shaped by this quest for permanence for gold yeah gold is the symbol of the metal that just endures immutability and, right and i think that in the context of a discussion about change and stability or mm. but in the context of constant change some things stay the same and how is that permanence achieved and maintained and what what does it mean to want to maintain it to want to conserve form and structure. And uh, I find it really interesting, the idea in alchemy that powerful princes use their influence to try and develop these elixirs or find the gold that's going to give them eternal life. And then at the same time, the quest for gold has a political power that can be seen as needing to insist on life in the face of death right and both of those feel uh like things that we could intuitively understand as everyday aspects of our contemporary yeah. economy if we're thinking in terms of political economy absolutely because, yeah so elon musk or jeff bezos whoever the constant quest for eternal life yeah you feel like guys it's time to die but millions of people living in slums on the fringes of urban centers in ruined economies there's an insistence on wanting to live that feels like it has a totally different quality to it ethically so the question is it time to live or time to die feels like a very deep spiritual question and how to navigate asking and answering that question it's really challenging i think the thing that jeff robbins said that really got to me was when he was talking about his kids and how you have this deep relationship with your kids. But it's in that moment that you're relating to them and then they're gonna change. And so you have to be able to allow that experience you, you have with a child in some sense to die. You have to leave it behind and grieve it mm -hmm. in order for to allow them to grow and change and become a new version of themselves that you then 
learn to relate to in a different way and that without the death in life you actually kill the thing you want to save you know yeah yeah absolutely and i mean i guess another name for that is you know to pick up on another theme that's come up now and again is love yeah and i realized matt when because i thought that and i realized you were right in in our first introduction i challenged you that i was trying to claim that love was an inappropriate renaming of something that should be more um more open about its destructive nature but i think that i came to realize in my reflections that love in that sense does have to allow destruction because you have to allow something to die in order for the thing you love to be able to live yeah which you know lends a sort of tragic quality to life in a sort of nietzschean sense which i guess is like kind of the spirit that we were picking up on in our conversation with Jeff. The other thing that you made me think of just now when talking about alchemy as the quest for gold as, you know, in part an economic uh, question or project, I think there's an important sense in which, you know, you mentioned Musk and I forget who the other one was, but I think there's a strong technological overlay as well that lines up with or is analogous to this question of binding and loosening, right? The magical question is at the same time for me, a technological question. Those to me are very much two ways of, at least in a circumscribed sense, two ways of talking about the same thing or something very similar. But that's a little bit outside of the margins of of the text here. Yeah, Yeah. Which, you know, is sometimes for me is like, you know, where the fun happens. But I think I want to... um, coming back to the text, picking up with Malibu as a starting point to circle back to some of the different things that maybe we missed. Um, Top of 175, he says, at the heart of being itself lies this notion of exchange. Exchange is the essence of being. And then on the following page, this metabolic holding together is energy, which is also a plastic phenomenal crossing of things. Energy is not some immaterial force disconnected from material form. Energy takes form in and as change, as exchange. Energy withholds itself as energy in the form of matter, but it does not exempt itself from change because energy is change and change is always exchange. So he's kind of just, you know, recapitulating the same point there. I feel like when when Crockett repeats himself, he's doing so for a reason. He really wants to sort of emphasize this larger metaphysical vision for us so that we can understand what is happening ontologically as completely correlative to the point he's making in this chapter about economy and ecology through his engagement with Bataille. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the challenges that I've had with this chapter is I don't really understand Malibu's reading of Heidegger, this idea of the exchange of being, capital B being lowercase b. I think I get a kind of broad brush idea there that Heidegger is, in talking about being, wants to kind of designate Dasein as a particular kind of being, uh, which I've come to understand as a perhaps more self-aware being, the being that is thrown into the world and has to decide how to live authentically as a response. Right, sort of emphasizing the more existential qualities of of, of that. Yeah, Um, and that in thinking about being as a broader concept even, Mm -hmm. there's some sort of exchange between that existential being in the world 
and being as a form of existence but in my understanding is that for heidegger existence is something that's always becoming rather than something that just is that's where i feel like i'm i always struggle with heidegger because i feel like i just don't really know my way around his work enough i have a question i think which is is malibu saying anything more than being in the world in the existential sense of being thrown and having to live authentically is not disconnected from the broader being of i think that's exactly right clayton does as i recall i think i saw it this morning as i was flipping through there's a section where he talks about the relation of being capital b and beings as asymmetrical yeah the point of that that asymmetry is one that i think he's trying to make on purely material grounds on philosophical grounds on existential grounds and on in terms of a general economy vis-a-vis Bataille. So that all of these things can be thought together mm. as, okay, as, as asymmetrical, as irreversible. And I think that's why perhaps he begins with that sort of gloomy, I suppose, vision that he actually returns to later on briefly. Let me see if I can find it. Oh yeah, there's a sad, I wrote a sad face in the margins. <laughs> Um, On the bottom of 172, he writes, Our world is post-sustainable because we cannot simply manage or sustain our energy usage and consumption on an Anthropocenic planet. At the same time, the rapid decline of energy reserves is thus, paradoxically, a world full of expendable energy. We will need to find ways to indulge in excessive practices of giving and reciprocity with the planet and with each other, even as these processes lead us to our doom. I think at this point, having read enough of this, I feel pretty confident that Clayton's view here is that given the irrevocable nature of entropy, given the general situation of scarcity, which is to say limited resources, that there's really no way out of this. And so what he's offering is it's less an intervention and more an invitation to think along with him on this. I mean, he does say, we've, we've, we've touched on it this a couple of times, what can we do? Nothing. So there's a sort of reconciliatory aspect to what's going on here, but there's also, let's imagine what comes next. And I think he gets into this in the later sections of the chapter, talking about post-sustainability and what that would look like. Again, drawing upon Malibu, the idea that it will only be possible for us to reimagine a future for us in a post-capitalist situation. So that's kind of like the litmus test or benchmark for where are we at in this process. I think it's a sort of kind of taking a pulse of where our imagination is and also trying to push that imagination in a direction that I guess he thinks it ought to go um, Mm. because the trying to avoid what's coming is not productive. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's really interesting, Matt. Because you've joined up a few things there that I think it is definitely very valuable for me in terms of my trying to process this chapter. You know, you used the word gloomy earlier. And I think that is one very legitimate way to talk about this. Death involves grief, involves gloom. Loss. Loss, yeah. Uh, But I think in terms of what we were saying earlier about death being absolutely integral to life Uh, and that's been the thing that has really been on my mind since we spoke to Jeff 
it's the kind of organic nature of death and life, death and life, which is a process of energy and change. Hmm. And and so, you know, how you express the kind of tone of what Crockett's trying to do, this kind of, you know, we can't get out of it. it it's, the goal is not to be sustainable if sustaining the thing that's killing us why would you sustain the thing that's killing us uh, and these things are way outside of control uh, so stop trying to solve the problem that is unsolvable but at the same time acknowledging that something is gone or is dying or you know we can't go back to something or that's going to involve loss and grief and in some some level of pain and but it, it's not actually necessarily the end capital t capital e as if from that there's no beginnings or life or growth or growth in other ways uh so i i do think that makes this chapter quite tricky i'm not sure it's a dialectic i'm trying to find what word it is that it's a kind of you know it doesn't feel like a dialectic in the sense that it's not like well this one thing then this other thing then we're through to a third term you know it's um uh, it feels to me like an irreconcilable contradiction that we just have to live with yeah or a sort of circular process of going back to alchemy i was writing about the or uh, the or oh, i can never say it Ouroboros. Ouroboros, yeah the snake eating its own tail the idea that something circular is not simply a circle it, it requires the metabolization of its own death and so it's it's only in this sense that we now have this excess of energy we would dug up all this inert energy burned it into living energy um we now have an excess of energy it has to be metabolized. So there's going to be death. So the question is then what happens and how will we respond to that? But I think that's coming back to what you were saying before. I think that's where the, the insight about asymmetry is really valuable because asymmetry is the basis of gradients. And this book has been a book about the kind of incessant force of gradient reduction is what creates form as well as destroys form. So different yeah. asymmetries will create different forms and structures, which don't all equal death, even if uh, some of them have to pass through death. Yeah, there's a sort of trajectory of possible resurrection, right? I think that's what he's getting to at the end. I mean, he doesn't use the term, but talking about uh, what a post-sustainable future would need to entail i mean he really draws heavily on haraway and latour and their sort of post-humanist work there's also this fellow St stokel St St i'm not sure how to say his name yeah stokel i think yeah or, i have that same quote highlighted yeah or or her name I'm, I'm not i'm not familiar at all with this person but um hmm. stokel writes if there is to be a post-sustainable world it will open itself as the after effect of gleaning of the charged object the charged body the collision of past and future in and through death. It is a realm where there is a convergence of responsible recycling, defiant ritual, the sacrificial destruction of use and meaning and social commitment beyond the narrow desires of the self. And then he sort of supplements that with some thoughts from Haraway staying with the trouble who writes, the task is to make kin in lives of inventive connection as a practice of learning to live and die well with each other in a thick present. And, you know, bringing Latour into that, the human, in a sense, can can no longer be the, the central term isn't, isn't exactly how I want to say it, but the human can no longer sit at the top of that hierarchy, I suppose. 
so to the extent that there will be a post-humanity, it will be one where humanity is just radically rethought. Perhaps that's why he's kind of heading into the next chapter on what I assume will be sort of more animist themes, where there's a, a radical reconception of what human can mean. Uh, I don't know. I guess we'll find out when we get there. Uh, yeah, and I, th- I think for Latour, the, the absolute key issue is the break between nature and culture. And so it's the idea of culture as a product of human society. So Latour really wants to destroy or at least massively reimagine, or in his language, reassemble the idea of the social. So the, the social is not just the thing that humans do together, but the social has to be the the complex entanglement of all agents, whether yeah. human, animal, or what we would call inert and so on. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> I like everything we've talked about so far. I also feel like the thing we set out to do at the beginning, we haven't done. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what do we need? Who do I mean, do we need to talk about Bataille or uh do we well, need to I, talk more about the details of the the kind of economics in this chapter? I think yes to the former. I think Bataille's value is in kind of just setting up this general economy. Once you have that established, then it kind of provides a framing, uh, aside from Malibu's framing, or in parallel with, with Malibu's framing, of understanding what's going on in this chapter for understanding how economy and ecology are working together, and also the psychoanalytic framing that's going on. There is one aspect of this chapter that I I don't know, I found particularly interesting is when the conversation went to labor. Mm-hmm. Because that it pushes in the direction of an understanding of a, a political understanding through a sort of Marxist lens, who I think is pretty well known, formulates a commodity as a form of labor value, which is extractive. So that's where you get connection into economy and ecology. So understanding how politics is kind of stacked up with those other two plateaus, let's just say, I thought was really helpful for me of how to kind of think those things together. So in specific terms, Crockett's talking about, he talks about particular technologies, doesn't he? How, how, you know, the steam engine wasn't necessarily more efficient than the water wheel, but it was just um, more transportable and therefore you could have workers in all sorts of different places. But then when you start sending workers down coal mines, the physical load, as in L-O-D-E, of coal is structured in such a way that the workforce can really restrict its extraction if they want to. And so you have a very strong development of unionism under those conditions, which when you move to oil, for example, when you most of that is done, you know, gives the example of Rockefeller and standard oil pipelines, it's harder to disrupt. And so the interplay between labor as a form of extraction and other types of commodity extraction in terms of particularly fossil fuels hmm. uh it, it forms an, a, a kind of constantly evolving uh, power exchange power being in this context a way of talking about energy and time right just now i'm i'm wondering about the possible usefulness of a sort of shifting from seizing the means of production to a seizing of the means of extraction which makes me think about why those 
for example, like oil pipelines are so contested. I can't think of an example where someone sees the means of production, but I can think about the absolute intense response to those who stand in the way of seizing or disrupting at least the means of extraction, because that is really the source of political and economic power. That's um, really interesting. Yeah. Well, and also I think in terms of how even in the digital economy now, where we start to talk about you know these huge social media as extractive industries in the sense of extracting information, surveillance capitalism is the idea that each of these companies, Google being the biggest of all, is constantly extracting information in order to generate value. Um, this is just off the top of my head, so this is not fully thought through thought, but I think that the idea of the nature of of the extractive industries around oil pipelines that we still have, the extraction of value in a capitalist society through the constant accumulation of data and the kind of um, the energy required to sustain those data. I mean, literally the material energy required to sustain those data flows, but also the energy that that does or doesn't generate within the human population to a part of the economy that is still based on the extraction of fossil fuels. It feels like it's quite an interesting interplay of... It's a little bit circular, isn't it? Right, Because yeah. it, the, the, the source of energy, which is still fundamentally material and based on a fossil fuel economy, but now it's sort of turned back in on itself. And I think this is one of the points that he makes in here and that how under a neoliberal regime, Growth is no longer possible in absolute terms, only in relative terms. And so new sources of energy, I think in, in economic terms, these are called human futures, something like that. Uh, we found a new way to extract not just labor, but to extract value from personal data and the sorcerers of capitalist marketing are put to work along with the algorithms and so on. Um, yeah. And because we've hit real limits to growth in sort of planetary terms, there's really nowhere for that extractive process to turn except back on itself, which is kind of, I guess, where we are. Yeah. And increasingly, large-scale studies are showing stronger and stronger correlations between social media use and poor mental health, social media use and political fragmentation because we're constantly required to contribute activity in order to have our have information extracted that allows for a kind of profiteering hmm. i think that exploring that in terms of the question of energy i mean i i get the impression we're going to go on to talk about energy in more spiritual terms um although spiritual in a in a more sort of holistic integrated kind of way but it feels like from an economic perspective, you know, like historically, the oppression of the workers is energy sapping. Right. But it feels like the language of the workers doesn't, it, it's very relevant to certain sections of the population. It doesn't feel so relevant to large other sections of the population because we're not under that same kind of industrial capitalism anymore. We're now under much more of a kind of post-industrial capitalism. There's a sort of um, digital proletariat or something like this. Right, right. <laughs> One of the things that I, I kept thinking about, especially kind of picking up on what Jeff was talking about, you know, he kind of pushed back a little bit where I was putting forward energy and change as 
I guess, two sides of the same coin. He was pushing in a direction that was more, I think he said they're kind of opposite. I was really thinking about that more, especially in terms of that little white heady and quip that all life is theft. And also he, Clayton begins this chapter with that little antidote about how when Socrates is, before he eats the hemlock, is saying, you know, don't cry for me. I'm about to be cured of death, aka life. So we're back into this sort of indeterminate zone. I think I have a problem with thinking about so I ha- I'm of two minds over this. On one hand, I think that's absolutely true. Given everything that we've talked about, life, in a sense, is theft. It requires sort of a sapping or a uh, rechanneling of energetic flows. You're right. It's taking energy from one section. It's putting it into individual uses, and it's that individuation that characterizes life. Another way of saying that is like not individuation, but privation. Life is essentially privative right? The separation of being lowercase b from being capital B is privative, extractive. And so life itself, life as such is in sort of orthodox theological terms, which is sin. Life itself is sin because it's privative. Uh, at least that's that's one of the major ways that I've understood sin. You know, other ways of like missing the mark, or whatever. That's more like moralistic or sort of performative. You know, but in a sort of at the most fundamental ontological level, life is theft. Life is sin. I don't know what to do with that because we want more life. <laughs> we want life to continue. This is why I circle back all the time to orthodox readings of things because I think oftentimes those readings are right just for the wrong reasons. I think there's an alternate accounting of original sin that we can talk about, right? Just the fact that we're fucking here. And this is where we get the nature culture thing and all and all that sort of stuff, right? Because what would it mean to sort of completely efface the nature culture distinction? In a sense, it would be to efface the subject-object distinction. In a sense, it would be to efface consciousness, you know, which yeah. is an out which is an outgrowth or an emergent property, however you want to think about that, of of life. I don't know what to do with all of this, frankly. Yeah. I, I think that's brilliant, Matt. And it really, I hadn't thought about any of that in relation to this chapter, but that definitely resonates with other things that I've thought about in previous contexts. Thinking of it in, in economic context, you know, globalization brings with it this sense of everyone is all part of a one. Hmm. And this very strong pushback that we're experiencing all over the world against globalization is the insistence on the many, the plural, and not the all the plurals can live within the one, but the plural that is separate uh, against. And Latour, I think, is really interesting in this context because Latour's theology, as I understand it, can be thought as, as the need for any collective, and for Latour, a collective is not just humans, it's all sorts of objects and animals and whatever but each collective must say by which authority they are convoked by whom are you called around whom do you gather don't just say we're here under the principles of nature as if there's some kind of abstract law that just exists that everything can function according to like say who calls you uh, if you deny climate change say who calls you if you advocating measures to counter it say who calls you and 
around who do you gather so that politics and theology can be thought together, um, but not as creating a one, but allowing for many, not as a as a nice kind of global community, but in order to prevent war, hmm. uh, because otherwise <laughs> we're going to kill each other. So the only way to not kill each other is to acknowledge these fundamental differences and to sue for peace and to start an actual negotiation that allows for difference. And um, I think that the idea that life is sin is is brilliant. Uh, I've never I've never heard that phrase before, but I, it, the immediate thing I think of when you describe that is that the alternative is heat death. You know, the, if we're going to have everything the same, if everything's going to be shared equally, right. all the energy is shared across all of the particles through all the fields or whatever. Right. We've got the final equilibrium of you all. Want, of you want true equality? Here it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's just the end. That is capital T, capital E, the end. Yeah. So in order for, for there to be anything other than that, uh, there has to be some kind of yeah theft in, in, in that language you've used, which I think is brilliant. And um, I, I've become very slowly over several years persuaded by Latour uh, that there is no one there is no whole, there is no global yeah. uh, other than when we say by whom we are convoked and mm. we allow for the possibility that we have enemies. Um, and then on that basis, we can negotiate for peace. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I still kind of resonate with different kinds of monism, but I'm also sort of less sure that that's just not something that's sort of like a heuristic um, I just put that out there to say I find a monistic metaphysical framing a good starting point that allows for any number of discussions about plurality or multiplicity. You're absolutely right. There may not be a one to the extent that there's a totality. It's certainly one that we cannot get our hands around. I remember talking to Mary Jane Rubenstein a while back about this. She's like, She's like, ah, I don't know. Maybe everything's one. Maybe it's three. Maybe it's 17. I don't know. <laughs> He's such a like fantastic meta thinker. Um, but for the rest of us, or for folks like me, I'm just like, yeah, let's just go with the one. And then, you know, I can work with that. You know, if reality's three or 17, what does that even mean? I don't know. I can't yeah. do anything with it. Sure. And I mean, I think it's interesting in the context of the conversation about Malibu and being and being, isn't it? Like the exchange between being capital B and being lowercase b, mm. and we assuming that there is one being uh, to substrate them all. But, you know, in the context of Crockett's work so far, I think we're saying, well, any being has physical form and that form is the result of a play of energies and multiple competing gradients. And mm. uh, yeah, there's there's definitely complex dynamics there. I think it's almost impossible to have these kinds of discussions without assuming a kind of unity. If you don't have that as a as a sort of starting point, uh, as a sort of premise, uh, I mean, Deleuze just write somewhere or other, I can't remember where it is, but that the magical formula is monism equals pluralism. I had one other thing I wanted to, to explore. So, Crockett's talking about Bataille, who is drawing on, I think it was Marcel Mauss, uh, the um, anthropologist who's looking at much older gift economies or indigenous gift economies, which 
have a different basis of exchange and the idea that a gift can put you under obligation and it it creates structures of mutuality but you've not got the idea of fixed value that you have under a capitalist system which kind of reduces things um, by designating that kind of clarity over value anyway we had the conversation and then I had to go on a really long drive and I was listening to the audiobook of uh, Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson uh, the path to power and uh, it's extraordinary great biography and he's talking about how Lyndon Johnson is running these um, campaigns in Texas and it's just a basic tale of political corruption right he's just buying off these guys over there buying off those guys over here um, it's all based on gift economy uh, you know so you do this okay he's just got all these people owing him in ways that are very complex and aren't written down and aren't, you know, fact, there wasn't a price agreed and then paid. It's just massive debt networks, uh, all based around obligation. Um, and that's what secures him and allows him to um, grow and grow and grow his influence over time. And it's incredibly enduring. And what it made me think about was there's a reason that European societies left gift economies behind. <laughs> Uh, and I'm not saying that I think that that, you know, eradicates the argument by any stretch. Um, but I think that there's complexity to the idea of talking about gift economies. And the, the problem of the example of Lyndon Johnson, it seems to me, is the power dynamics involved. So it's the concentration of power systematically in certain structures where certain people have access to those structures and the vast majority of people don't that allows people with access to those structures to to cultivate networks of debt obligation that then allow them to consolidate uh power and and bring more people into that kind of web i mean it's like i mean it's the mafia operation right that's the kind of iconic way of doing that uh the ultimate gift economy gone wrong so um I just thought it required a bit more critical thought about because it, well, it didn't seem to me to be a lot of critical engagement in this chapter with the risks of a gift economy. And I understand the idea about the, the kind of a future economy has to deal with excess. It's not like, a you know, I would just rather it did in a kind of utopian sense. It's a material argument based on the excessive energy now let loose from an extractive capitalism. So that's the situation we find ourselves in. And now we have to work out how to deal with that. Uh, and so that that excess leads to thinking about gift giving and the kind of excessive nature of gift giving. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to bring in that kind of, well, I'm not sure it's quite a qualification. I think it's just a question of what would it mean in practice, really? How would an economy that tries to think about gift or tries to return to gift in Caratani's terms, uh, mm that tries to break the exploitation, that tries to break the commodification and return to some kind of gift economy, but in a new way, appreciating we can't we can't actually just return. Right. Uh, how would we do that in a way that didn't perpetuate many of the problems that we've talked about in terms of exploitation of people and, yeah. and so on? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the question or one of the questions Clayton doesn't necessarily directly address, although he does sort of draw out that question. But I sort of understood what Crockett was saying as not necessarily advocating for a gift economy or a return to a gift economy. I think in part what he was doing was trying to draw a continuity between a gift economy and modern forms of 
quantifying debt and so on, and, and that essentially a gift economy is a debt economy, you know, just arranged differently and less quantified. I think he's trying to problematize the entire idea of an economy on the terms that we've so far understood it. And that, again, pointing towards whatever comes next, we're going to have to think of something completely fucking different. And I think in that quote that I read out before from uh, that guy, the fuck is his name? There's that one line in there that for me, it gets to that. Um, It's a realm where there is a convergence of responsible recycling, defiant ritual, and this, the sacrificial destruction of use and meaning. Part of the discussion in this chapter is the idea of meaning and desire as it relates to economy and our relation to things and the sort of excess of being that that affords us. We have to destroy our notions of use and meaning. I don't know what that entails or what that's supposed to look like, but I, I guess in that sense, I, I understand that there is a, a sort of apocalyptic necessity to this destruction if we're going to sort of move forward into some not sustainable, right? Because we're giving up on the dream of sustainability. We're giving up on the dream that we can live in complete equilibrium. So it's going to require a radical reconception of how we relate to energy or energy use to material. It's, it's going to require a complete revolution in the sort of apocalyptic sense, right? Yeah. So that makes me think of the bit near the end of the chapter where Crockett's talking about Latour and some um, you used the phrase earlier, which I thought was brilliant about um, seizing the means of production, but seizing the means of extraction. And there's a different term that relates to production here, which is uh, we need to shift our analyses from a system of production to a system of engendering. That. I, I didn't quite understand that. What, what is he getting at with that? I, I don't fully understand that yet because uh, that was the last book I think he wrote before he died. Um, and he wrote like a follow-up thing on engendering that I've not read yet but what Crockett's writing here is so so what he writes after that phrase which which is where the link comes is this shift is similar to Caratani's shift of historical analysis from a system of production to a system of exchange so that that references this idea that you know Caratani has these four types of economy the early early gift economy and then you end up with an economy of domination then an economy of commodification and the fourth type is trying to get back to some kind of gift economy because it wants to think in terms of exchange. And so then Crockett's saying, because exchange is always metamorphosis and therefore change, as Malibu points out, a system of exchange is also a system of engendering new dynamics and new relations. So I think it's thinking engendering as a way of talking about the... the, um, uh, uh, hesitant to use the word construction, but I haven't got a better word right now. Maybe the uh, emergence of uh, yeah, the emerging of novelty. Of, yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, of, uh, uh, yeah. In these new relations, in, in dynamic relationship to each other, um, and so rather than say what we're going to need to do is rediscover a gift economy, it's understanding that a gift economy allows for a different imagination of how relations are engendered. And that we, we're in a situation where, as you're saying, we need something new and we don't know what that new thing is. But we can think about, rather than just thinking about production, engendering is uh, 
I mean, maybe that's a word that would be useful to interrogate a bit more as, as we go forward um, in our reading. But I understand that as like the emergence of novelty uh, in terms of new relations. Right. Which I guess touches upon the question of agency and identity, which we've we've been talking about as we go. Um, yeah. And and perhaps that's why he kind of closes this chapter with a little discussion about language. And yeah. A, a language about coding and decoding between human and non-human uh, and more than human entities. He writes, we need to learn to read the codes attached to things to understand and interpret these codes and codings that constitute a universal language if we want to survive. And actually just before that, he writes, this common language is shared with all things in the world, creating the potential for something like peace. And then he returns to Bataille talking about how energy and how the sort of excess of energy is an explosion of joy. And he uses kind of different examples like the creation of a star, a planet, a life, or an ecosystem, right? This sort of excessive overflowing, I suppose, of being that is energetic can be understood as joy. The last couple of lines he writes here is, this joy is the surplus energy that Bataille names in the accursed share. The joy that Ceres associates with Biogea is energy. It is also spirit to which I turn in the next chapter with the aid of specific non-Western traditions. So I guess just to kind of put that, situate that in light of the darker existential, we've used the word gloomy aspects of what's implicated by this uh, and what's actually explicated by this, this chapter. It's interesting to end on a point about joy. I'm not exactly sure what to do with that. I think perhaps it's just uh, an emphasis. And I think we briefly mentioned melancholy with Jeff. I'm not sure if that part of it made it into the the edit, but you know, the idea that melancholy is a sort of mixture of sorrow and joy. And so I suppose what, you know, in, in a kind of simplistic sense, what Crockett is doing here is emphasizing that pole uh, existentially, but there is a sort of a real metaphysical valence to that as well yeah and i think in terms of latour and engendering as i understand it as i read it it, latour's big philosophical project is about existence what causes existence i mean at at a very basic level that's how how i understand the word engendering that's what we're talking about You, you cause something to exist and it's under what circumstances does ontology change because new things have been caused to exist new new in his language on translation he talks about new mediators coexisting and when that's set in the context of how to die well it's the process of embracing death that is also bound up with this surplus this mm. joy this new existence um mm. but it's not something we're in control of that's what i'm having to really encounter through this book i mean you've been pushing it right from the start and i feel like i have to admit i've been slow it's I've been slow to let go of my solutionism because I want to solve the problem. It's the embrace of, I'm not in control of what's happening, but I can embrace that death occurs in life and that life emerges from death. A new existence happens and there's a joy in that. There's there's, there's something like absolutely terrifying and sublime and and beautiful about it. Yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Should we stop there? I feel like we've accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. And I mean, at this point, the, the episode's going to be like two and a half hours. Yeah. 
Um, oh, it's been good chat, so Matt. I mean, on a personal level, I've, this this has been you know, and actually to, having the conversation and coming back to it is um, it's been great. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting because we're talking to Petra in a couple of weeks about the next chapter, mm. and then Mary Jane after that at some point, and then Clayton. I think we're gonna have a lot to ask Clayton about when we, uh, we when we, we finally are. finally do talk to him. We're gonna have to book out like a four hour slot to get, to get through all our questions. Yeah, well, yeah. So I normally, I, I typically will block out like 90 minutes cause that's, you can usually yeah. get what you need to get done in a 90 minute conversation. But yeah, I might I might block out like two and a half hours with him or something like that. Yeah, if he's up for it. I mean, I, it's hard to know cause you, we might end up zeroing in on some things and you know, that they end up being the nub questions and- That's true. But, yeah, that's, that's true. To know what he, he, if he's okay to listen to all these episodes, what he makes of them. All right, man. Well, listen, all I'm right. going to go uh, feed my child and, you know, do life. Right on. Good talking. You too. Talk to you later. Bye.